Good afternoon. It's good to be with you today. It's a blessing that God has given us this time to be together, to open up his word together and be nourished by it. If your Bibles aren't already open to Luke chapter 20, I ask that you'll turn your Bibles with me uh, there now. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14, we're told that the spiritually mature are those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. How do we properly train our powers of discernment? How do we discern between good and evil, right and wrong, wise and unwise, true and false? I think most of us would recognize that we train our senses of discernment by spending time in God's word, but but even as we read God's word and study How do we form our conclusions about what we read? How do we determine what we believe based on the scriptures? How how do we uh, determine what we will practice? I, I want us today to consider two different approaches to discerning good and evil, right and wrong, true and false. And that's being driven by consequences or by conviction. What exactly do we mean by that? Well, let's look at some of these examples. We're going to start here in Luke 20. And and I want us to look at three examples of people who were driven by consequences rather than by conviction. Uh, And then we'll look at some examples on the other side. Some of the scriptures that we're going to be reading today, we're not going to be turning to a whole lot of different scriptures, but we are going to take the time to read some longer scriptures in context. I want us to go ahead. I know we just read Luke 20, but I want to read it again with this thought in mind of are we being driven by consequences or by conviction. Luke 20, verse 1 through 8. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things and who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. When Jesus asked this question to them, where did John's preaching come from, from heaven or from man? How did Jesus expect them to know the answer to that question? You know, what, what kind of things might they need to consider um, in order to determine if it was from heaven or from man? They, they might think, well, was, was John's teaching consistent with the law and the prophets? Things that we know to be from God. Was John bearing the fruit of godly character in his life? Uh, did the things that he prophesied come true? Or was his life a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that we see? Did did he perform any signs or wonders to confirm his teaching was from God? Maybe did the events of his birth and the appearance of the angel to Zacharias and Elizabeth uh, confirm that he was in fact sent from God? Do you notice 
they don't discuss any of those things, right? As they're trying to determine whether his teaching was from heaven or from man, honestly, they're not even trying to determine the truth. (laughs) They're trying to determine what they should say and what consequences that would have. If we say from God, then he's going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? We're going to look like hypocrites. That's exactly what they were. Uh, If we say from man, well, then the people aren't going to like that because they all thought he was a prophet. They might even stone us. And so they aren't genuinely trying to determine what is true. They're trying to determine what is most advantageous for them. It's not a question of what is right and wrong, true and false. Their question is, how is this going to affect me? How will it make me look? How will others react? That's what we're talking about when we're talking about being driven by consequences. And I want us, in each of these examples that we look at, to to question, is that us? Is that the way that we think about the doctrinal truths that we accept or reject, the positions that we take, the things that we teach and practice? You know, the, the Bible's teaching on homosexuality is pretty clear. But I'm just not sure that's going to fly in today's society. So, you know, people might think we're bigots. Maybe we shouldn't talk about that. Maybe we shouldn't teach that. You know, I might say, well, you know, the Bible emphasizes grace and and faith time and time again. We saw that in Romans today. But, you know, I don't want anybody to think that I'm, I'm becoming faith only. So maybe I won't emphasize that as strongly as the Bible emphasizes it. The Bible emphasizes the work of the Spirit in our lives. But I don't want anybody to think I, I'm becoming Pentecostal or, or charismatic. So maybe, maybe I'll not really emphasize that the way the Bible does. The Bible emphasizes the importance of ministering to the poor and needy throughout the prophets and Jesus' teaching. But I don't want people to think that I'm adopting a social gospel or that I'm going liberal, so maybe I won't emphasize that as much as the Bible does. The Bible emphasizes the importance and necessity of obedience. But I don't want anybody to think I'm being pharisaical. So maybe we won't emphasize that as much. Do do we determine the things that we teach, the things that we practice, based on how it's going to look, even to our brethren, maybe? Or to the world around us? Are we truly committed to God's will and following his word, speaking what he speaks, even emphasizing what he emphasizes? Or are we, like the Jewish leaders, more concerned about how others are going to respond to what we believe and teach? You know, we, we talk many times uh, about speaking where the Bible speaks and being silent where the Bible is silent. One, one thing that I've, I've been trying to challenge myself on is emphasizing what the Bible emphasizes. Making sure that what's driving us is a conviction of God's word, what his will is, what he wants us to know, what he wants us to believe and practice, and not simply how that's going to look or how other people are going to respond. Let's look at another example in the Old Testament. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12, you remember uh, the division of 
the kingdom of Israel between Judah and the south and Israel and the north. And Jeroboam is given control over these northern ten tribes. And here in 1 Kings chapter 12, starting in verse 26, we read, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made, and he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day on the eighth, in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Do you read how much there it says, which he made, which he made, which he devised in his heart? Why, why did Jeroboam do that? Why is it that Jeroboam made the golden calves? Why did he set up the altars in Dan and Bethel? Why did he set up the temples in the high places? Why did he start making priests out of all the people and not just out of the tribe of Levi? Why did he set up this feast day uh, that was of his own devising? Obviously, what was going on in Jeroboam's heart here was not asking the questions, well, what, what's going to be pleasing to the Lord? Uh, what will bring him glory? What will accomplish his will? What's going to draw the people closer to him? Now he's thinking about how is this going to affect me? How will the people respond to this? How will this affect me and my kingdom? I'm going to establish my kingdom. And if people are going out to Jerusalem... You know, before long, they're, they're, going to, they're going to stone me. They're going to return to Rehoboam. How might we fall into this mindset? Th- think about our work as a church. Are we more interested in biggering and bettering the East Side Church of Christ? Filling chairs, filling the collection box? Or are we more interested in drawing people to the Lord and expanding the borders of God's kingdom, making kingdom citizens, making disciples who are truly devoted to the Lord Jesus? You know, if it's about us and about how people are going to respond to us, well, then I think we could really get a lot more people in the door if we started offering some more social programs uh, some fun activities for kids, maybe a little bit of entertainment, not, nothing too over the top, you know, and it would all have a Christian flavor to it. You know, we'll have free pizza and Jesus, uh, you know, game night for Christ. Uh, and a little coffee and donuts in the back wouldn't hurt. But where is our motive in that? Where is our heart? What is our goal? What are we seeking to accomplish? 
Is that the kind of work that we see in the New Testament church involved in, in the pages of our Bible? Do we see any examples or patterns of them using the collection in that way? Does that have any place in the mission that Jesus entrusted to his body, the church? What's the motive behind decisions that we make as a church? Are we genuinely trying to please the Lord? Because if so, then everything that we do is not going to be about, well, how are people going to respond to this? How is this going to affect the bottom line? The question is going to be, is this what God wants of us as his people? Is this what we see him revealing to us within his word? Do I have some scriptural reason, some scriptural basis of what God has told me that would drive me to do these things? Or are we simply focusing on attracting people, on fitting society's picture of what a church should be? You know, Jeroboam here, uh, what initially seemed to be a really smart idea politically, to help out his kingdom, didn't end so well for him and for his family, did it? No, we need to rather be focusing on pleasing the Lord than simply how this is going to affect us. Let's look at a third example. Jeremiah 42, we read this not too long ago in our uh, congregational scripture reading, And um, you see here in Jeremiah, after Nebuchadnezzar has come and wiped out Jerusalem, there's a, a small remnant left. And at first things are going well, but then somebody comes in and murders the governor that the Babylonians had set over them. And now things are really scary. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come back in. This is, this is the guy that wiped out the temple, that destroyed Jerusalem. And now they're on the hook for possibly having murdered the person that was set over them. So they come to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 42. And they want to know what they should do. Starting in verse 1. It says, then all the commanders of the forces and Johanan, the son of Korea and Jezaniah, the son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest came near and said to Jeremiah, the prophet, let our plea for mercy come before you and pray to the Lord, your God for us, for all this remnant, because we are left but a few as your eyes see us, that the Lord, your God may show us the way that we should go and the thing that we should do. Jeremiah, the prophet said to them, I have heard you. Behold, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your request, and whatever the Lord answers you, I will tell you. I will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to all the word with which the Lord your God sends you to us. Whether it is good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. This sounds promising. This sounds a whole lot different than what we've just looked at with with Jeroboam and the the Jewish rulers. Um, Here they're saying whatever God says, whether it's good or bad, whether it's pleasing or displeasing, we're going to do what the Lord says. In verse 7 it says, at the end of 10 days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. When I read through this most recently, I found that interesting. You know, 
God doesn't give an immediate answer. For 10 days, they're waiting for this answer from the Lord. Can you imagine maybe what's going on in their minds during that time? Okay, God hasn't said anything yet. I I wonder what we should do. What do you think we should do? And as day one, day two, day three, day four goes by, they're starting to form in their minds perhaps well, you know, I really think that this is going to be the best decision. I really think this is what we should do. By day 10, it seems they've already made up their mind what God's will is going to be on this, what the right course of action is. But Jeremiah, after 10 days, responds to them and tells them, stay in the land, Um, submit to the king of Babylon. Again, the, the king that wiped out the temple, that wiped out Jerusalem, you submit to him. And God will protect you. Well, look in chapter 43, starting in verse 1. It says, When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people all these words of the Lord their God, with which the Lord their God had sent him to them, Azariah the son of Hoshiah and Johanan the son of Korea and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, You are telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, do not go down to Egypt to live there. But Baruch, the son of Moriah, has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans, that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. So Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. How did they determine that what Jeremiah said was a lie? Was it that what he said was somehow inconsistent with what they knew of God's law and what God had already revealed to them? Had Jeremiah shown himself to be a false prophet by teaching uh, other things that didn't come to pass? Well, no, it was nothing like that. No, they determined that what he said was a lie because it wasn't what they wanted to hear. It wasn't what they had determined in their own heart was what God wanted and what God would approve of. It required for them to forsake their own thoughts and their own plans and do something that was going to be uncomfortable, was going to be dangerous, that was going to be difficult. Is that us? How do we determine what is true and what is false in our lives? You know, Even as we listen to the news, how do we determine what's true and what's false? Is it just based on kind of what I already have made up in my mind is true or what I want to be true? Or am I genuinely seeking to know the truth? Most importantly, in my relationship with the Lord, as I study his word, and I hear different people teach and preach different things. How do I determine what's true and what's false? Have I already kind of made up in my mind what I want it to be based on how it's going to affect me, how difficult it's going to be, how uncomfortable it's going to be? You know, I I might say, well, I I, I don't think God would expect me to to attend every uh, assembly of the church. I think it's just fine uh, to be involved as I'm able, you know, kind of fit church around my schedule. How did you come to that conclusion? Is it something that we read in God's word that that drew us to that conclusion? Something that we heard from him? Or is it kind of 
what we already had made up in our minds was, was reasonable. You might say, well, I, I don't think God would want me to stay in this marriage. You know, as stressful and hurtful and unfulfilling as it is. Or maybe uh, even though I was divorced unscripturally and am in an unscriptural marriage, I, I just don't think God would require me to stay single. He wants me to be happy, right? Okay, well, how did we come to that conclusion? Was it based on how it's going to affect us? How difficult it's going to be? How much we're going to have to sacrifice? Or was it based on something that we read in God's word? I might say, well, I, I just don't think that, that the, the way or the reason that you're baptized is that big of a deal. Okay, well, how did you come to that conclusion? So many times, even before we come to the scripture, we already have in our minds what the answer should be. Maybe based on what we've heard growing up. Maybe based on the standards of society, maybe based on how it's going to affect me and how difficult it's going to be. We, we need to have the attitude that the remnant here claims to have, <laughs> whether pleasing or displeasing, whether it's difficult or not. Whatever God says, that's what I'm going to do. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We can't follow our own plans and our own thoughts and what seems best to us because it's going to lead us astray. There's a way that seems right to a man, Proverbs 16, verse 25, but the end thereof is the way of death. It's not within us to direct our own steps. And so how do we determine what's good and what evil, what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false. We need to completely surrender our own thoughts and what seems best to us and what's going to be easy to us and how it's going to affect us and whether or not it's going to accomplish what we want to accomplish. We need to act rather on conviction that this is what the Lord said and that's what I'm going to do. I want to look at some positive examples of this mindset. Back in Genesis chapter 22, if you'll turn your Bibles with me there, we see the record of Abraham being tested in the sacrifice of his son, Isaac. Re read with me here in verse 1 through 10. Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1, says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, 
God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. If you know the story, as we continue to read, we see that God keeps Abraham from slaying his son. God provides uh, a ram caught in the thicket for the sacrifice. This is a hard story to read. It's a hard story to try to put ourselves in Abraham's shoes. You know, what would be our response in this situation? You know, I, I, I could very easily see me uh, saying, well, let, listen, God, I want to obey you. I really do. But, but this is where I have to draw the line. You, you can't expect me to kill my own child. I, I waited years for this child, and now you want me to take his life with my own hand? I, I'm sorry, but I, I just can't do that. We might say, well, God, this just doesn't make sense. This is not a reasonable command. What you're asking me to do is just not right. And you, you promised that through Isaac you would form a great nation. What, what happened to that? Would that be us? That's not Abraham. Abraham gets up early in the morning. For three days, he travels with his son, knowing exactly what he has to do. Even when questioned by his son, he says, God will provide the sacrifice. We're told in Hebrews 11, verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. It didn't make sense. God, Abraham knew God's promise, knew that God is faithful, but he also knew what God told him to do. And so it didn't matter if it made sense to him. It didn't matter if he understood exactly what God was going to do through all this. God said it. And that's what Abraham was going to do. Abraham acted on faith and conviction, not on how this was going to affect him or whether or not it made sense to him. Is that us? You know, are, are we willing to make whatever sacrifice necessary to be pleasing to God, to do his work, to fulfill his will? Or have we drawn some lines in our lives that, God, we, we think this level of devotion and this level of obedience is, is what's reasonable? And if you ask me to go beyond that, sorry, I, I want to serve you, but, but this is as far as I go. If we genuinely have faith that, that God is our creator, the uh, eternal one, that he is our powerful, that he is in control, then we need to fully surrender whatever my thoughts of what's reasonable are to what he says. That's what I'm going to do because he's in control, because he is God. Let's look at another example in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 
in verse 13. You remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, as young men here in Babylon who refused to bow down to this golden image that has been uh, erected. If you'll read with me in Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 13, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't just remain faithful insofar as they were confident of being delivered. You you see that last statement there? But even if not, God's able to. We know God's able to. We don't know that he is going to. And even if he doesn't, let it be known, we're going to serve him. They didn't only trust in God's power, they trusted in God's will. And they were going to be faithful to him, not just because they had a hope that it was all going to turn out well for them. No, it very well could mean that they were going to be killed, that they were going to be burned alive. But even if that was the case, we're still going to do what God wants us to do, no matter the consequences. Is that us? Are we only serving God insofar as he blesses us with the kind of life that we desire? Or are we willing to be faithful to him through the fires of trial, through the deepest, darkest valleys of discouragement and grief? Are we willing to surrender all of our personal dreams and hopes and goals for life to be who he wants us to be, even to be faithful unto death? Brother, that's what God deserves, because he is God. Are we living by conviction or simply by consequences? Let's look at the ultimate example, Jesus himself. In the Gospel of John, I've been studying this with some of the young men recently, um, We see a couple of times in John chapter 5 and in John chapter 6, Jesus making a similar similar statement here. In John chapter 5 and verse 30, he says, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
Again, later on in John chapter 6, verse 37 and 38, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In the context of John 5 and of John 6, in John 5, he's being rejected by the religious leaders. And they are upset and offended by him because he is healing on the Sabbath. And he's basically saying, listen, I didn't come to gain your approval. I didn't come to be accepted by you. I come to do the Father's will. In John chapter 6, he's fed the 5,000. And many of them are coming to get another meal. They're interested in this food that he has to offer. But they're not seeking him for the right reasons. And so... Jesus gives them a very difficult teaching and they all turn away. Only a few are left who are still following him. He goes from having a crowd of of 5,000 people to only having a few followers left. And in that context, he's once again saying, listen, I, I didn't come to gain your approval. I've come to do the Father's will. What were the consequences of that commitment? To the Father's will. Well, in Matthew 26, verse 39, we see Jesus making that similar statement once again. As he's in the garden of Gethsemane, it says, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Brethren, Jesus did not spend a single day on this earth for himself. He came to this earth to pursue the Father's will. He knew his mission and purpose was to die as a sacrifice for our sins. And as painful and dreadful and undesirable as that was, it didn't matter what Jesus felt about it. It didn't matter what it would cost him. He was not driven by the consequences. He was driven by conviction, by a love for the Father, by a love for us. And as disciples called to take up our cross and follow him, that is our pattern. This life is not about us. It's not about me. That's not why I'm here. I'm not here to accomplish my own will. I'm here to do the will of the Father. That's what it means to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Do our lives reflect a not my will, but yours be done attitude? Are we driven by how things affect us or by conviction of what God desires of us? An unwavering commitment and devotion to him. What about you today? As you think about discerning good and evil in your life from day to day, as you think about the decisions that you make about your service to the Lord, as you think about the decisions that you make of of what you believe to be true, how do you come to those conclusions? How do you make those decisions? Is it because you genuinely and sincerely are convicted that that's what God desires of you? That's what it needs to be. 
Let's not let our own fleshly desires, our, our own fear of what consequences may come, our own desire to, to uh, attract people or get the approval of people, keep us from doing the Father's will. If there's anyone here who recognizes that they have allowed uh, fear of the consequences to affect their decisions, that the decisions you've made in your service to the Lord aren't what they need to be, Let's make that right. Let's repent. Let's change. Let's be exactly what God wants us to be. If there's any way that we can help you in that, that's why we're here, to help one another in our service to the Lord. Uh, If you need to confess some sin before these brethren, uh, we can pray together, and God is faithful and just, is gracious to forgive. But if you're not his child, if you've never committed your life to him, won't you do that today? Won't you surrender self? Won't you bury self in the waters of baptism? That by his grace, and the power of the resurrection, you can be raised to walk a new life. No longer living for self, but living for Christ. If there's any way that we can help you in your service to the Lord, won't you please let it be known as we stand and sing together?